This is episode 258 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, News of Tom Lair, with Jeff Morris. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. can turn a can into a cane who can turn a pan into a pain it's not too hard to see it's silent e who can turn a cub into a cube i am so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today jeff morris is with us so first welcome jeff thank you yeah so first i have to tell the audience well, what we're going to talk about today, which is Tom Lair, and I'll give a brief bio for him in just a minute, but I was so delighted to find Jeff Morris. I've been looking for a long time for somebody who would come on the show and talk about Tom Lair because he's right up my alley, and I was really fortunate to find Jeff Morris, uh, who has this terrific website yeah. Uh, about Dr. Demento and Tom Lair. I was looking for a bio about Tom Lair and was lucky enough to come across uh, this website, uh, dmdb.org, the Demented Music Database. I got in touch with Jeff. He seemed like a pretty friendly guy. (laughs) So we became acquainted over email. And then of all the great coincidences, it turns out he lives in Bloomington, Indiana, my hometown and works at Indiana University, my alma mater. So really excited to be able to talk today with Jeff about Tom Lair. And I'll just give a a little bio about Tom Lair, just in case some of my audience on the younger side might not know who he is. He was born in 1928, and he's still alive today. Mm -hmm. He's an American musician, singer-songwriter, satirist, and mathematician. He recorded pithy and humorous songs that became popular in the 1950s and 60s. His songs often parodied popular musical forms, though they usually had original melodies. An exception was The Elements, in which he set the names of the chemical elements super fast all together in one giant long word to the tune of the Major General song from Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance. Oh, and I should mention that Daniel Radcliffe of Harry Potter fame covered this song, and you can see it on YouTube, and you can actually see what that it's really, really hard to do this song. But he does a he does a good job with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lara's early performances dealt with non-topical subjects in black humor and songs such as poisoning pigeons in the park, which might be his most famous song. In the 1960s, he produced songs about timely social and political issues. The popularity of these songs has far outlasted his topical subjects and references. And Lair quoted a friend saying, always predict the worst and you'll be hailed as a prophet. (laughs) 
In the early 1970s, Lehrer largely retired from public performance to devote his time to teaching mathematics and musical history theater at the University of California in Santa Cruz. That's Tom Lehrer. And then I want to explain a little bit more about Jeff Morris, um, because that will give you some insight as to why uh, he's an expert on Tom Lehrer. He works at Indiana University during the day, his day job, as a computer programmer and associated uh, activities. And he has a recording studio, which is where he is today, which is called Morris Studios. He says he's had that for about 30 years. He's also Dr. Demento's archivist and official historian. And we're hoping someday that we might be able to spend some time also talking about Dr. Demento. And he says he's spent a significant amount of time working with his with Dr. Demento's old tapes. And he's done uh, work for several demented artists, including, of course, Tom Lair. Uh, so let me start first, Jeff, by just giving a little bit of background about your studio. Mm -hmm. What do you do with Morris Studios? Well, uh, anything that deals with audio, basically, uh, and a little bit of video. But uh, I started out mostly doing new recordings of local rock bands or whatever kind of bands uh, that wanted uh, record. I mean, I've done rock, country, rap, classical, religious, spoken word, sound effects, uh, you name it. <laughs> I've probably done it. Uh, but then in uh, recent years, I've been focusing more on transferring older recordings for people, including, of course, Dr. Demento, but also often people, local people will come to me with recordings of uh, relatives that are long gone now, but they have this old... Oh, like a, they have a cardboard record from 1943, or they have a micro cassette tape from 1983, or they have an obscure format called the RCA sound cartridge, or all kinds of different uh, formats that they might have and have no way to play at this point. And so I will transfer those for them. So that's mostly what I do. That's really terrific. You know, um, of course, that those things seem so precious to me, those kinds of memories and unique, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, you can't find them anyplace else. They're not on iTunes right. or, or on Amazon. Right. You know, one thing my listeners may not know if they're not familiar with Bloomington is Bloomington is a huge music town. Yes. Uh, the music school there, of course, is is world famous, mm -hmm. uh, but it spawns also all kinds of different sorts of musicians. So people sometimes stay in Bloomington. They don't have formal music affiliations anymore. They might just be amateur musicians. Um, but Bloomington, you know, really benefits from having these kinds of people and, and having people like Jeff Morris, <laughs> of course, that can contribute to that whole music scene that exists in that town. Something that I really loved mm -hmm. when I lived there. And, and I can get pretty <laughs> nostalgic, actually, about Bloomington. But I'm reminded of Tom Lehrer's sure. song, My Hometown, in which he recounts all these really <laughs> terrible and evil yeah, characters who right. live in his hometown. So, yeah, I have, <laughs> I have to be careful not to get too sentimental because, right. yeah, <laughs> there's always a dark side. Uh, true, yes. So let me ask you, what got you interested in Tom Lehrer? See, I, I suppose I've... First heard the first song of his I would have heard would have been a Christmas Carol on the Doctor Demento Christmas album that my dad had, but I didn't really become overly 
familiar with him from that. Uh, then later I found the Dr. Demento radio show, and he started playing others of his songs. Ah. One of the first ones, not the first, but one of the first ones I heard on the radio show was The Elements. And so mm. uh, being the kind of person that I am, I had to get out the periodic table and go through and mark off every one as he sang it to make sure that, yes, indeed, he did sing all 102 that were <laughs> around at that time. <laughs> then after a little bit, uh, when I was listening to the show, Demento did a spotlight on Tom Lehrer where he played like a whole half hour of his songs. And in that, he played new math. And I, I'm a, a math person. As myself. So uh, that was interesting. I didn't know. I mean, I was in high school at the time. So uh, and <laughs> they weren't teaching that form of new math at that time. So I wasn't familiar with base eight that he talks about. But I understood completely from the song what he meant. And I figured it out. And I wrote it down on paper and figured, oh, okay, I now I understand what base eight is. <laughs> oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So you were a completist in sort of checking his work. And then it turned out, yes, he, he was a completist too. So yeah, some satisfaction mm -hmm. in that, right? Oh. Yeah, not that I disbelieved it, but uh, I, I just uh, I just wanted, it's the kind of thing I do is, is check things and just learn from things backwards. Like Stan Freeberg's History of the United States of America, for instance, has references to current events of the time that I learned about in school, but I already had heard reference to on the record and I'm like oh I know what this is I know it's funny right it's sort of all these uh, souls finding each other right <laughs> okay so one thing I want to talk about uh, right up front is the conducted Tom Lehrer uh, okay. so tell us about that work yeah how and why okay well uh, that's a new uh, album that uh, was released this year by Needle Juice Records uh, they're based in Nashville, and they approached me about it, I guess it was early last year, actually, and they just had the idea to compile together all of the recordings that he did with an orchestra, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, over from 1960 to 1999, uh, over just a span of just a few sessions. I think their primary motivating factor for wanting to do the release was the fact that I had these stereo mixes of the orchestral sessions from 1960. So many of us think of Tom Lehrer as being a solo performer, just yes. him and a piano. So yeah, I think it's really interesting to learn more about why there were these orchestral performances. The basic story is that Jimmy Stagliano or James Stagliano and Bob Sylvester uh, ran a company called Unicorn Records and they made this little offshoot called Capricorn Records and it was just their idea to get him to record with an orchestra. Now, uh, I don't know off the top of my head who selected the four songs, because they were all songs that he had previously released. And so I'm not, I'm not sure who selected them. Uh, I didn't, Richard Heyman is who arranged them. They put out two as a single. They recorded four songs. It was pretty standard in those days to for a new artist, which he would have been new to their label, mm -hmm. to maybe record four songs in a session and you put out two on one single and then you've got two more to put out on the next single. But unfortunately, the single didn't do very well and so they never bothered to release those other two. Oh, They were unheard by most people until... Uh, 1991, when he gave them to Dr. Demento, and they were played on his show, and they were subsequently released 
on some of his compilations and then on a CD that Rhino put out in 1997 called Songs and More Songs by Tom Lehrer. Now, those were all in mono. Now, I had wondered about the possibility of stereo recordings, whether they were... I kind of figured they would have... By 1960, they probably were recorded in stereo, but singles were always released in mono at that time, or almost always. Oh. And so they had only mixed them for mono. So I thought... Well, I, I I asked him about the tapes one time uh, back in the 90s, and he didn't really know where they were, and uh, he just figured, well, what's out there is, is all we have. Then, in 2011, <laughs> I was visiting him in Cambridge, and we were down in his basement uh, looking around, and there's some boxes of tapes, and I look, and, well, look at that. There's the master tapes for <laughs> the uh, orchestral Oh, my sessions. goodness. From 1960, and I, I said, "Oh I, wow!" <laughs> and uh, I asked if I could borrow them, and uh, being a little hesitant, figuring he wouldn't necessarily want me to borrow his master tapes, and he said, "Oh, per- it's perfectly fine. Just uh, he said the best versions are already out there. I don't really care. You know, uh, he wasn't worried that any- if anything happened to the tapes, it wouldn't have bothered him, uh, basically. And-, and he doesn't really care about stereo versus mono uh, himself, so." I said, well, great, I'll bring them home, uh, which I did. I talk about this story a bit in the liner notes of the, the new CD. If you get the <laughs> correct liner notes, let, let me clarify that, because actually the first uh, pressing of the CD uh, has the wrong liner notes. It has my liner notes for a different album, but uh, they're reprinting those right now, so hopefully they will <laughs> send out the corrected booklets to everybody who bought the, uh, the CD early enough, so... Anyway, I got home with uh, these tapes, and uh, only only after I had left his house and driven several hours away did I realize that they were half-inch tape and not quarter-inch tape, and I didn't have a way to play them. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah, right. That sent me <laughs> in search of a machine, and uh, I found one in, funny enough, in Nashville, Tennessee, same place that this label is based, at the old uh, Monument Studios where Roy Orbison and... Oh, early Dolly Parton and Ray Stevens uh, recorded and other people like that. And actually, the tapes had previously been used to transfer some... Uh, the, sorry, the machine had previously been used to transfer some Ray Stevens tapes. Oh, neat. So I bought it, brought it up here. Then I had to make a little electronic gadget because the tapes were recorded with something called Ampex Master Equalization, which was only on Ampex machines for a few years in the late 50s and early 60s. Most machines have what is called NAB, N-A-B, National Association of Broadcasters Equalization. And so this is a Scully machine. And and anyway, I'm probably getting way too detailed, so you can edit out the boring stuff here. But (laughs) No, I'm sure there's somebody out there who will be fascinated by that but to me it's just a you know it's just a window into the complexity that you get into that sometimes with you know with old media right yes right yeah there's a lot of stuff you don't think about because you you might think Mm. oh just put on the tape and play it and you're done but no there was a lot more to this so there was a couple you know thousands of miles of driving and thousands of dollars of buying <laughs> things and uh, hundreds of hours of work put into mm. making these uh, new stereo mixes of these four um, songs. Uh, and I sent them to Tom, uh, and he said what might sound like an insult. He, he said, well, it sounds the same to me. But uh, oh. we, actually, that is actually a compliment to me because that was my goal oh, was, was to make say, it sound... Yeah. <laughs> 
the same as the record, just in stereo. <laughs> is the you know, and so I think I achieved that goal. I did those mixes back in uh, 2012, and uh, Dr. Demento played them at that time. So they've been heard on his show for quite a while, but they had never been oh. released. And so you know, a decade later is when Needlejuice asked me. Well, what you know, what could we do about getting these released? You know, they had the idea for this compilation, so I said, "Yeah, that sounds good." So the conducted Tom Lehrer, this uh, CD, this series of recordings, was released early in 2023, and it's available also on that website that I mentioned before. I mean, it's quite interesting that now we have access to this that we didn't have before due to your work and it's available and people can purchase it, which I think is, you know, really cool. I think that's, that's, uh, you know, that's interesting that we have that in the world now. Uh huh. Well, thank you. That, uh, yeah, actually, it, it uh, if I recall correctly, the, uh, online streaming and download version came out in, on April 20th, but the CDs weren't available until, I believe, the first week of October, maybe the very end of September. I got mine the first week of October, at least, uh, and the cassettes, and then the, the LPs uh, are not pressed yet, but they have been taking pre-orders for those and should be coming out pretty soon. I don't know an exact date uh, on that, but soon. Yeah, no, it's a brand new, yeah, opportunity for us to expand our collections of Tom Lair. Is there an explanation for how these orchestral uh, recordings came about? Because, as I say, usually it's just him and the piano, mm -hmm. uh, but somewhere along the way, somebody must have pulled together an orchestra for him to play with, which is quite an undertaking, right? Well, as I mentioned, uh, James Stagliano uh, and... Uh, uh, Bob Sylvester ran this Unicorn Records label, which was a local Boston label, and that's you know Tom is based in Cambridge and Boston area. They just had the idea, so uh, I assume that they paid for <laughs> getting these orchestra members uh, together. I don't really know uh, precisely. Uh, maybe Richard Heyman, who was the arranger. I, I don't know if he was the one who contracted them. I don't know exactly how that happened, but it was basically the idea of this. Uh, small record label to uh, get that together for what comprises side one or the first eight tracks of this compilation, which are the four songs that they recorded with Tom's vocal and then instrumental versions of them. I just thought it would be fun to give you a karaoke kind of bonus there to listen to. There, there you go. That's great. So yeah, you can play it and channel your channel your internal uh, Tom Lair. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. Then the other side of the album is uh, recordings from the '70s and the '90s. So uh, the Electric Company was a children's TV show in the uh, '70s, and they asked him to write some songs, and he wrote eleven songs for them. Uh, one of which was not used on the show. So they used 10 of his songs. Uh, they had several different people doing vocals, but he did the vocals on four of them. So those are the ones that are on the album. And uh, they got together an orchestra as well for that. And that was 1971 and 1972 uh, when those were recorded. So some of those songs are really fun, uh, like the silent E. Mm-hmm. Uh, OU's song, uh, songs about uh, words and sounds, um, yes. which are super fun. He's just like the perfect person to do a song about that. 
And so I, I had so much fun actually preparing this morning for the podcast as I was able to, you know, spend an hour listening to Tom Lair. Um, oh, but yeah, okay. the silent, yeah, the silent E song, uh, super fun. Uh, who can turn a dam into a dame? And mm -hmm. a little hug uh, be, uh, can become huge. And then it's all because uh -huh. of silent E. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love those. My day job is training and coaching. And I uh, train uh, English uh, for people whose English is a second language. So these are right up my alley. Oh, gotcha. I love uh, yeah, oh, I yeah. love these things. Oh, that's handy. That's cool. Yeah, the owl song and that. Yeah. So yeah, super fun. The an apostrophe T song. Yeah. So some really great uh, songs on there. Yeah, I enjoy those a lot. And I, I think probably the best known of those is Silent E. And he uh, had mentioned that because he was an instructor at University of California, Santa Cruz for many decades. And eventually he was at the point where he was teaching kids who had grown up watching The Electric Company. And they didn't know his older songs, but they knew Silent E. And when they found, he, he said so, something one time, he said, well, when, when they found out that I wrote Silent E, it was as if I had written Jingle Bells or something. <laughs> they just thought, I can't believe <laughs> this is the guy that wrote that song. Yeah. Yeah. So for one generation, it's poisoning pigeons in the park. And then for the next generation, it's Silent E. He's got it all covered. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so Lara had kind of an unusual trajectory in in becoming known. Um, it, yeah, so can you give us the the breakdown of how that happened? Well, I was not alive at the time, and I wasn't there. So, mm. uh, you know, I'll, everything I say is going to be second or third hand. But basically, I think he was known around the Cambridge area, around Harvard University, where he had gone to Harvard and, and he had done some instructing at Harvard. He also instructed at MIT and some other places at different times. He would write these songs and just play them at parties. I think he said one time that uh, people would get out their guitars to play and he'd say, oh, none of that. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to play the piano instead. And uh, so so he got known around there, and so he decided to make an album just to, of the, uh, I guess, the you know, the best ones or something uh, so that he could, uh, you know, sell that so people could have a, a little keepsake, I guess, or whatever, and they could listen to it. And he just made 400 copies of the album, and it was only intended to be distributed around Harvard and, and that area. But, of course, people would then have it and then go back east or go back you know to the midwest or wherever take it somewhere else with them because they liked it so much and, and play it for their other friends outside of the country and so then he started getting orders from all over the country for the records so instead of only selling 400 copies he ended up selling uh you know several hundred thousand copies uh, uh, over the decade um wow yeah, so a very uh, much a an an indie release, uh, you know, because it was on his own label. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the the record just started to become known nationally. Of course, it really didn't get any airplay in the fifties because the that was not the type of song that you would be <laughs> likely to hear on the radio at that time. You know, pop songs of the day were not very. Uh, 
they wouldn't deal in questionable subject matter, let's say, in general, you know. Yeah, more puppy in the window kind of pop song. Yes, that's true. Yes, Doggy in the Window, I think, was 1951, if I remember correctly. And this was 1953 when he made uh, that record. He got written up in Time magazine. You know, more people would order the record. And uh, he kind of saw it starting to take off. And at that time, it was pretty common for people to be drafted into the army for two years and he decided well i better get that out of the way you know before diving too deep into this career i guess uh, so he he voluntarily went into the army for his two-year stint I, he did a little bit of performing there because there's actually a recording of him in washington dc at a, an officer's luncheon or something uh which i haven't heard but and i know it exists uh, somebody i know uh, actually has the the record of that and i'd like to hear that someday yeah yeah. He had been getting enough orders that he hired some people, I think maybe some college students or something, to help out with the orders. So he didn't have to do it all himself. And then they took care of things while he was in the army. And uh, then he came back and, you know, started doing more performing, going on little tours. I don't know if tours the right word, really, because as he's pointed out, there wasn't that much of a circuit like there is today it's not like you could just say you yeah. know book me 50 colleges or something it's it was more a lot more work than that of uh, either people contacting him because they wanted him or maybe him contacting others i suppose and just trying to see where he could go and how he could arrange a tour or something uh, so mm -hmm. so he did do that for two two and a half years maybe there were some occasional TV appearances in the 60s. There might have been some in the 50s, too. I'm not sure about that. I've never seen any TV appearances he made in the 50s, but I suspect he may have made one or two. He even toured uh, in England and uh, Australia and New Zealand in 1960, uh, and he really enjoyed that, You know, just being able to get out of the country and see other places and and all, but by that point he was getting a little. I I I, I'm, I don't want to put words into his mouth, so I, I could be it could be using the wrong term, but I I would say probably a little bored with the the whole thing of performing, and uh, it was just wasn't really where his heart was at. Mm. He just didn't see himself being a performer long term, and just singing the same songs night after night after night, and he mm. would start getting distracted during a performance, and you know forget a line and. Uh, just thinking about, oh, I, what am I going to eat? Or did I turn the gas off or what? You know, <laughs> that's where I get the term bored. I don't know if he used that term, but that sounds like the right term to me. So he just decided to kind of hang it up. and But he still sold the records. You know, he still had the same. Uh, he had made another album or two in the in the meantime. And uh, he, you know, went back to teaching and, and academics and so forth for a while. And then... In 1964, uh, January 64, a uh, TV show premiered on NBC called That Was the Week That Was. And I don't know if you ever got to see that show. I have never seen that show. And from what I've heard, all the tapes were destroyed. Oh. Like in 69 or something. There are audio recordings from it, but uh, I'm not sure if there are videos of it or not. I haven't looked too thoroughly. There might be something on, on YouTube. I know there was a special retrospective in the 80s that I haven't seen but uh, so they might have you know a few kinescopes or, or something but from what I've been able to discern uh, it was 
maybe a forerunner of Saturday Night Live and and things like that as uh, some sketch comedy and uh, some political satire. I think some news reporting and you know they would report on the the events of the week. That was the week that was. So they would report on the news events of the week, but in a funny and satirical way. So it sounds uh-huh. to me like the forerunner of Weekend Update on on SNL. Yeah, and so he saw the show, and uh, they were using some songs, and he thought, "Well, I've got some better songs than that, or, or I can write some better <laughs> songs from that than that." And uh, I think the first song he had on the show was National Brotherhood Week, mm. so that would have been February of 1964. So uh, you know, he just sent, I think unsolicited, he just started sending in songs, and and they started accepting them. They would have various people sing them. Nancy Ames was one of the singers on the show he's always said that she looked good but she didn't get the joke oh dear <laughs> he never felt that her performances <laughs> of the songs were that great and so that's why in 1965 after the show had gone off the air it was i believe the lowest rated show <laughs> at, at the time oh it only lasted for a season and a half and i i, I really wish i could see it today but so he decided, well, I better make an album of the songs myself to make them sound like they were supposed to sound. Uh, and that's where his album, That Was the Year That Was, came from in 1965. So uh-huh. so he was back in the limelight for a little bit. And uh, that album did actually make the Billboard album chart, the top 200 album chart. Oh. Actually, it charted rather high, if I remember correctly. I want to say it was number 17, but I, I should probably look that up before wow. you quote me on that. But <laughs> anyway, then they re-released his older albums, and I believe An Evening Wasted with Tom Lehrer, which is the one that has Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. Ah. I want to say that got to number 133, so not a huge showing, but at least it was on the charts. I mean, he had never been on the album charts before because he wasn't on a major label, and uh, they weren't keeping track of the sales on some independent label from Boston or Cambridge. Right. That wasn't likely to actually make Billboard's uh, purview. So that's where he made that. And then he did some more touring. Uh, he went to Norway and um, oh, various various countries uh, in uh, 67, maybe 66 and 67. Well, he went to England again in 66. He did some songs for a show over there, a TV show called The Frost Report with David Frost. Uh, David Frost had also been the host of That Was the Week That Was. Aha. Uh-huh. Which That Was the Week That Was had been a British show before it was brought over here. It was probably much more successful over there, I'm guessing, than the American version was over here. But at any rate, he did some concerts. There's a there's a DVD out from Shout Factory that has a, a concert that he did. And there's a DVD that PBS put out a few years ago with uh, the concert footage. So then in 68, he actually did some touring with uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary and uh, some other people. He was, he was doing some political rallies, uh, basically. Oh, I had no idea that he toured with Peter, Paul, and Mary. That, that's crazy. It is. And you want to hear the crazy, crazy part? Is he actually performed in, in Dun Meadow in Bloomington in 1968. Oh, oh I wonder <laughs> if my dad went. That wouldn't surprise me a bit. He, he probably went. Yeah, he was a That's big right. Tom Lehrer fan. We had a number of his albums. And, and I remember my dad would sing along with the Tom mm-hmm. Lehrer songs. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Well, that would be great to know if he did. Uh, somebody sent me some, you know, snapshots that they had taken uh, of him at Dunmeadow, and they're on my website uh, uh, if you want to see them. <laughs> so, oh, I'll check them uh, out. Oh, I didn't find them before. Oh, I'll check them out. Yeah, oh, that's really cool. I think just under the the pictures section somewhere. If you can't find them, let me know. But I wonder if that's the era of the song uh, "So Long, Mom," the a song for World War Three. Right. That one was on uh, the TW3 show. That's what they called That Was the Week That Was, TW3. And, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and so that one was uh, done in uh, either 64 or 65. Yes, some, uh, I forget off the top of my head who performed it on the show. But, and that, but yeah, that, that is the right era, sure, uh, of that song because uh, that was certainly during the Vietnam War, uh, which was... Uh, well, just getting started, I guess. Our involvement, I guess, was just getting started around that time, and certainly it was quite an issue in 1968. And really, really typical Tom Lair approach, you know, is this sort of jolly, r rollicking song, you know, yes. so long, mom, you know, super gay, upbeat, so long, mom, <laughs> I'm off to drop the bomb. While you're yep. <laughs> sweltering in your shelter, you can see me on t on your TV. That gave me a chill when I read that lyric because of the whole idea of, you know, televised war now. I mean, yes. so much of this stuff, you know, just so so prescient for, <laughs> right. for what was still to come, you know, the decades still to come. Right. I mean, the Vietnam War was, you know, somewhat televised, but obviously not to the extent of what we get today. And, and he was referring to the Huntley Brinkley report, of course, which, uh, I mean, younger people wouldn't know who they were. I didn't know who they were either. I had to look them up, but uh, uh, certainly well-known mm -hmm. newscasters uh, in the mid-60s. So, Yeah, there's some, of course, references in his songs that are dated now, but they provide me, at least, with a historical perspective. So uh, how would I have known who Huntley Brinkley, uh, who, who those people mm -hmm. were? Just because of that song, basically, and uh, you know, there's other things that he references that I th think, okay, well, I can tell that that's funny, but I don't know why it's funny, and I'm gonna look it up <laughs> <laughs> so I can understand the humor. And you know, basically, when you have to explain a joke, it's uh, normally not a good joke, but uh, you know, it didn't have to be explained at the time. And uh, so for me, it's just a, a history lesson, and uh, then I get it. Okay, so you've taken us up to uh, sort of 1966, 1967, and then what happened? Well, uh, he wasn't doing that much touring, you know, at that time, just uh, occasional performances uh, through 68. And then, you know, after the, uh, the political rallies and stuff in 68, I'm not aware of any public performances that, you know, I mean, full concerts, at least, that he gave after that. Although, no, you know what? Actually, he did tell me one time that there was one in 1970, somewhere in 1970 to 72, and I just it just now popped into my mind, and I don't remember the details of it, but I, I half think he told me there's a recording of it, but I've certainly never heard it. Uh, hmm. And I would have to go looking that up to figure out what that what that was. But... Then there was somebody posted uh, online in 1995 said that they saw his name on a marquee in 1978 in England that he was giving a performance oh. there. But I 
I have not heard any other references to that, and I suspect that that person may be misremembering, and perhaps they mm. were thinking of 1980 when the Tomfoolery musical review was on in London. And, you know, it might have had Tom's name there, but Tom was not performing. That was other people performing ah. songs, but Tom put that review together. I see. Anyway, but I'm you know, not a hundred percent sure about that. So you know, he basically hasn't done. Much, you know, much in the way of performing in public for well over 50 years now. So I have to ask you this, because I'm sure this is uh, in my uh, listeners' minds. So how do you know Tom Lehrer? How did you meet him? Oh, well, that's a, a fair question. I uh, first got in contact with him my senior year of high school. I was doing a report for English class on uh, musical satire, uh, so I, I believe the subject I selected was censorship of recorded satire. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I, it just sounded like something interesting to me based on things that I knew off of the Dr. Demento show. And one of the requirements mm. of this English teacher in high school was that you had to have one first-person interview uh, for the report. So I tried to get in touch with Stan Freeberg. I sent a letter. It came back to me as undeliverable. I think I might have tried to call Stan Freeberg as well and just didn't get through. But I also uh, called Tom Lehrer. I don't know which I did first, but I, I and I did get through to Tom. He, uh, you know, spoke with me for about five minutes. Just to, he said, you know, I'll uh, if I need to sign a <laughs> paper saying I spoke with you, I'll be happy to do that. But, <laughs> Uh, I didn't ask him to I do that. I hereby swear I spoke with Jeff Morris. <laughs> right. Uh, but he, 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 he said, basically, he said, well, make up anything you want. I won't deny it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I first talked to him. And then uh, five years later, I happened to be out in uh, the Silicon Valley area interviewing for a job, which I did not end up taking, but I went ahead and drove down to uh, UC Santa Cruz where he was teaching yeah. and uh, stopped by. And I thought, well, let me see if I can find him. You know, So I stopped by uh, Cowell College at UCSC uh, where he was and talked to a secretary there. And they said, well, he's already gone home for the day, but here's his number. I'm sure he'll be happy to hear from you. I went to a payphone and called him and, and spoke to him for, for quite a while there. Uh, and then we got into uh, somewhat regular phone conversations uh, throughout 95 and 96, continuing occasionally after that. And I wanted to write a biography, but he wasn't interested in that. So I didn't do that. <laughs> but I collected a lot of information, which... Uh, you know, I still need to go back through a lot of that information. I, I, I review these interviews sometimes and I see, oh, yeah, look at that. There's a piece of information I don't have uh, published or anything. And uh, I really need to go back through all of those uh, sometime, make an effort to organize all the information that I got over these myriad uh, hours of interviews. Yeah, that's just a wonderful story that he, yeah, that's just lovely. Yeah, and there's, there seems to be a myth uh, which was perpetuated by a BuzzFeed article uh, about a decade ago that I was interviewed for, and then when I read the article, I was uh, not 
too happy with the way they phrased things in the article, and I, I felt that they had uh, misunderstood some things I said, but they had also talked with some other people. Anyway, basically, they are saying that he has turned his back on his music, and he's really, you know, doesn't care about it, all like this, and which is just completely wrong. He really is very proud of his music, and just because he doesn't want to perform the same songs every night, it doesn't mean that he he didn't like it doesn't mean he's turning his back on that he's turning his back on fame i you know you could maybe say mm. that and on being a performer but he continued to write songs and he, he would do songs for special projects every now and then he did some songs for uh, dodge cars uh in what 66 i think it was and as he say we did he did the songs for the electric company he uh, did songs for his uh, local production at uc santa cruz He's done various advertising things. He even did a, a rap math song in for some educational software in the 90s, which he played me, I, I think, maybe back in 2007 when I visited him in Santa Cruz, I believe, is when he played me that. Uh, but I've never heard it again, and I have not been able to track down this software. There's only scant references to it online, so I'd really like to hear this math rap again. I think he has the lyrics on his site. Anyway, you can see from his site, tomlairsongs.com, that he has many more songs than what were put out on the albums. He spent the money to put up this website in order to give them to everybody, uh, put them in, in the public domain, uh, as it were, keep them in perpetuity, I guess, you know, so people can have them. There's a lot of things on that website that I've never heard of before. That really shows how much he... It's funny, I guess, I don't know, maybe some people think that him giving away the songs or putting them into the public domain means that he doesn't care about them, but actually it's quite the opposite. That's going to be a way to really perpetuate them because now anybody can record them for free and they can also make their own, uh, you know, they can do whatever they want with them. They can change the tune, they can change the words, they can, uh, you know, use parts of it in, in other works or whatever they want. I think that that's really a stroke of genius that's going to keep his work well-known for quite a long time to come. So I just think anybody that has misinterpreted that he is not proud of his work, I would like to set the record straight on that. I, there's no evidence that I've ever garnered to that effect. So, Yeah, there's something really ironic about that, right? I mean, yeah, it seems as though some an action that you would take that would in fact you know be like yes here i'm i'm sharing right i'm i'm putting mm -hmm. all my work in the public domain here it is on a public website anybody with internet access can get to this and somehow you know those actions are interpreted as well i guess you just don't care about it since <laughs> yeah you're not making money off of it it's sort of a yeah it's sort of the ultimate capitalist view of of what caring about something means right right yeah right. It, it's really upside down kind of yeah into but yeah it's sort of appropriate for tom Lair that everything everything's always off kilter somehow yeah buzzfeed yes. just has this article about oh yeah he just turned us back on <laughs> just like wait a minute <laughs> Right. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, he certainly has a different way of looking at things than most people. And, you know, even just talking mm -hmm. to him, just, just having a normal conversation with him, you pick up on that right away. And, and uh, you know, it's always very fun 
talking to him and, and just hearing his point of view on things. Yeah, I was so surprised when I went to that website and read the introductory screen that comes up about, here it is, I'm deliberately putting all of this music in the public domain. And he's very clear, download it, take it, record it, you know, I don't expect anything in return. This is, you know, for everyone. I mean, it's such a benevolent gesture. And and I, I mean, it's a reflection of our times that I was just astonished to see that, right? We, I, I don't know of anyone who's done that. Maybe there are other people, but of someone at least of his reputation and caliber to do that. It's just, yeah, it was, it was kind of jaw-dropping, actually. Yeah, as far as I know, it's unprecedented. I, I, I mean, I can't say that for 100% sure, but I'm not sure when he started working on this project, but he first mentioned it to me in 2017, and he had lawyers involved, and they were trying to work out how do you uncopyright something? Because <laughs> it just wasn't something. <laughs> Everybody knows how to copyright something, but how do you uncopyright it? My understanding is that he actually was not successful in uncopywriting his own works. Uh, but what he did was basically say, take it, I'm not going to pursue any actions against you. I, I think technically it may still be under copyright, but because he is not going to you know, try to go after any infringers it, and he wants it to be uncopyrighted, then for all intents and purposes, it's in the uh, public domain. If I recall correctly, he sent me the website to look at in January of 2020, and then it was around October of 2020, uh, so after over three years of working on it, uh, that he uh, asked me about making it public, you know, letting people know about it. And so I went mm. ahead and, and posted that information on the Dr. Demento Facebook group. Well, talk about going viral. <laughs> so I posted that information, oh. and within about 20 minutes if I recall correctly, maybe five other people posted the same information to the same Facebook group, not having seen my post, but having seen somebody else post the information after seeing my post on some other source. <laughs> so it wow. just started, I mean, it was a, almost immediate that people were going nuts over this uh, unprecedented decision. And I was kind of like, <laughs> it just befuddled me, I guess, that, that people were posting the same information that I had just posted minutes before, <laughs> but they got it through another channel. Tom, I think, confuses a lot of people because he's not typical. Some people might say he's not normal, <laughs> but I would say it's more he's not <laughs> typical. <laughs> Let's put it that way, uh, you know, in, in his line of thinking. So I think the average person always wants more. Personally, I don't always want more. I can be satisfied at, at a certain level. I can be content. You know, I think Tom was content with what he had put out to the world. And some people put out stuff every week, mm -hmm. political satire or what have you, and they're very prolific. Uh, but, you know, if you're putting stuff out with that frequency, you're not going to hit the uh, high mark every single time. And I'm sure they know that. Sure. You're going to have a few good things in there, you know, and you can select from that. And, you know, Tom would just select the best of what he did and, and only put out that. And, and he didn't feel like, I have to stay in the public eye. I have to 
do this for a career and 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 I have to stay famous. It's kind of similar, and in in a way, I I would compare what he did to what John Lennon did in 1975 when he stepped mm. out of the public eye to raise his son. And I mean, that's not what Tom did. Tom Tom didn't have a, a family to raise, but they both stepped out of the public eye. And uh, you know, John spent five years as a house husband. And uh, of course, he still did music in that time, as we know, because we just heard this new Beatles song that he had written in 1977 or whenever. And so he was he was still interested in music and still doing things uh, just not for public consumption. And I, I think Tom was kind mm -hmm. of the same way. And then, you know, John had a song about that called Watching the Wheels that was kind of explaining uh, how people thought, what, are you crazy? What are you doing? You know, and he's like, I'm just enjoying life, you know. And uh, of course, Tom was still working because he was a, a instructor at uh, colleges. But mm -hmm. to me, Tom is perfectly logical. <laughs> So I feel like I, I understand him fairly well. I, I can't get inside of his mind, uh, and I'm sure nobody actually wants to get inside anybody else's mind. You'd probably find some scary things in anybody's mind if you go delving. <laughs> but uh, you know. That's true. <laughs> Speaking for myself, yes. There you go. <laughs> Don't come in. Yeah. <laughs> Stay away. Stay far yeah. away. <laughs> But I, I, I'm confused at people who don't understand him and who misinterpret the way he acts as if just because it's atypical. Yeah, anyway. just because it's atypical, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's definitely different strokes for different folks, right? right. I mean, what we think of as normal, right, when you have mm -hmm. PR agents and you've got, you know, people pushing right. you and social media and, you know, you're reacting to every little thing. Oh, quick, now do this. Oh, you know. Yeah. Uh, is that normal? I mean, it's it's certainly common, but I don't yes. know if common and normal are the same. And, uh, right. you know, I can definitely hear a Tom Lehrer song being composed in the back of my mind about the difference between <laughs> common and normal. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, it's common for a, a pop star or, a, you know, a singer, a, a recording artist to have that kind of thing going on. And I don't think he had any desire to have that kind of thing going on. So he yeah. totally skirted that more or less, you know, more power to him. I mean, he was happy. And I'm so grateful for what he has produced, right? I mean, I, mm -hmm. to me, he's, of course, he, he, he has a very special place in my heart because of my dad having the records. Sure. But even beyond that, you know, I see the impact that his songs have had on people and just that particular kind of, of humor. I, you know, some of it is almost about survival, right? Like, how do you cope with the news of the day, right? You know, we mm -hmm. all get so freaked out about you know, current events and so forth. And this is one strategy for how you deal with it. this is an example to me of how an intelligent talented individual dealt with the issues of the day and i i think it's you know it's a pretty interesting and attractive uh, approach to life and yes. so i'm really grateful for for what he has uh, created yeah. Yeah, your dad was a physics professor, and I don't know if you're, you're familiar with uh, Tom and uh, some friends of his had put on a thing called the Physical Review back in 1951 mm -hmm. and 1952 at Harvard, which was a, a lot of physics-related songs, and the elements was in there too, I believe. I believe the lyrics are probably on his, his website for a lot of those songs, so uh, you might be interested in checking those out if you haven't already. <laughs>
I didn't know about it. I mean, I knew that my dad liked Tumblr, but I didn't realize that mm -hmm. there were, you know, more physics related things until you mm -hmm. mentioned it to me. Yeah, physical review is such a great name. It's the perfect name for what he did. Right, because it's a takeoff on a, an actual publication called the the Physical Review, right? I, I believe. But then it's R-E-V-U-E -E in this case. I have to ask you, yeah, what are some of your favorites? Well, that is a very difficult question because, you know, I basically like them all. And I, I, I'm not a person who tries to pick favorites. I don't spend much of my time thinking about what do I like better than the other thing. I just, I don't try to rank things. I'm not sure that I can really answer that. I, I will mention one of the ones that I like that Tom doesn't like uh, is it makes a fellow proud to be a soldier. I mean, to me, I always thought that was one of the funniest ones, even though I was never in the army, but uh, my dad was in the army and, you know, he could appreciate it. And I mean, I got a sense of the army from that song that, uh, you know, seemed to match with uh, what other people would say about, like, you know, our, our old mess sergeant's taste buds had been shot off in the war. <laughs> so obviously, they're not preparing very tasty food for the uh, privates in the army, right? But Tom uh, called that one of his lesser songs, which, uh, you know, bewilders me. But it's very often that an artist does not have the same perception of his work as public or as his most ardent fans uh, have. Do you, do you think there's anyone else like him? Ah, like in what way, right? You know, there are a lot of people who do political satire, which is not everything that he did, but it was a good chunk of, of what he did. There was a guy, Mark Russell, that was on PBS for many years, uh, you know, would have specials every so often on PBS. And he often got compared to Tom Lehrer because he sang political oh. songs to a piano accompaniment. I, I could see the comparison. I didn't see a whole lot of Mark Russell's uh, work. What I have seen of it, to me, wasn't of the same caliber as Tom Lehrer. Now, he was probably a lot more prolific, and probably if you go through his songs, you'll find several that are high caliber, higher caliber than the others or something. And, and I, I don't mean to uh, be insulting to, to Mark Russell. Uh, it's just he's someone who was compared with Tom quite a lot for maybe a couple decades or so. I mean, certainly there are a lot of people who have done Lehrer-esque songs, <laughs> if you will, and uh, a lot of people have been influenced by his work in many different ways. Obviously, Weird Al lists him as an influence. and uh, Oh, yeah. You know, obviously, mm -hmm. Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> as well. Right. And Tom, by the way, was very tickled uh, when uh, Daniel Radcliffe did that song. Uh, he was... Oh. Uh, Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> he was telling people about that and all everything. So, you know, it's like, is is there another Beatles? Is there another Paul Simon? Is there another, I mean, who, you know, pick anybody. <laughs> I mean, everybody's their own person. You know, you know, you don't want there to be a clone of yeah. that person, right? <laughs> He's, he is his own person and uh, that's what I enjoy. So, <laughs> yeah, me too. It's really been terrific to talk to you. We could go on for a lot longer here, but as I say, I'm uh, sensitive to the time. And before I let you go, Jeff, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? So, okay, well, uh, I might as well mention a, f a few of the websites. Of course, The Conducted Tom Lehrer is available from needlejuicerecords.com, Tom's own website with his songs for public download. 
is tomlehrersongs.com, and that has lyrics and sheet music on some of them, not all of them, and audio recordings of some of them. It does not have the uh, new mixes that are on the Needle Juice release. Of course, there's my website, dmdb.org, which you mentioned at the top of the show. That's the Demented Music Database, and... Uh, that website is devoted to the Dr. Demento show, but there is also a, a page on uh, Tom Lehrer and uh, a few other artists there. If anybody needs a, a transfer of some <laughs> obscure uh, recording or format, I'm at morrisstudios.com. There's M-O-R-R-I-S-S-T-U-D-I-O-S. Great. Yeah, thank you for all that. And I'll include those references in the show notes, too. Uh, so, Jeff, it's just been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and for coming on the show. Okay, you're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Who can turn a can into a cane? Who can turn a pan into a pain? It's not too hard to see. It's silent E. Who can turn a cub into a cube? Who can turn a tub into a tube? It's elementary for silent E. He took a pin and turned it into a pine. He took a twin and turned him into twine. Who can turn a cap into a cape? Who can turn a tap into a tape? A little glob becomes a globe instantly If you just add silent E He turned a damn alakazam into a dame But my friend Sam stayed just the same Who can turn a man into a main? Who can turn a van into a vein? A little hug becomes huge instantly don't add W, don't add X, and don't add Y or Z, just add silent E. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. <laughs>